who are watching and, and others. Uh, today is Sunday, April 26th, and so it's another week that we are um, gathering this way, which, which really isn't gathering at all, um, but, but it is what we have, and I, I do just, I'm so thankful. After, after I finish, after I, I preach and I go down, I, I, I'll scroll through all the comments, and um, it, it really warms my heart seeing people greet one another, and um, so, so I am so thankful for this, uh, the ability for us to do this, but I, I, will, I will just say, um, I can't wait till it's over, um, and so I... I'm longing with the rest of you. Um, I'm praying, and, and I would ask you to pray with me that, that maybe the month of May is the, the day or the, the month that we're able to gather again cautiously. Um, again, pray, pray for wisdom for our leaders, and um, I, I want us to be together as soon as possible again. And so um, I, I'm glad. I'm glad to be looking uh, three. It's funny when I talk to many of you on the phone, you'll say, "Hey, I'll see you tomorrow," and I, my response now is, "You'll see me, but I won't see you. All I see is a a back of a phone." Um, but but uh, today is the Lord's day, and and we are going to um, pray and hear from His Word together this morning. And so let's unless we get, I'm going to read from Psalm 56 this morning, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll look at. Um, the passage that we started last week from John chapter 16. But I'm going to read from Psalm 56 um, as we begin. Psalm 56 verse 1 reads this way. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you've delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father, in light of this psalm, we, uh, we, we hear the truths of your word in Psalm 56, and we confess with the psalmist uh, that we are often tempted to be afraid. Uh, so we, we confess our fears to you this morning. We often are afraid of things that we ought not be afraid, uh, things like death, uh, we're afraid of what others might think of us. We're afraid of maybe not having our hopes or dreams fulfilled. Maybe we're afraid of a, a losing of a job or losing of income. We're afraid of maybe our children not turning out the way that we would want them to. Maybe we're afraid of lose, losing a loved one, whether a spouse or a parent or a child. We're afraid of an uncertain future. We're afraid of a virus that has spread globally. Uh, we are often fearful people. And so it's good for us to be reminded of the truths here in Psalm 56, 
I pray that we would learn and learn and learn and learn, continually learn to trust in you. Lord, would we, we understand your nature, your character, who you are, and would that teach us to trust you? Lord, you've got the whole wide world in your hands. You are the one who holds all things together. You are the one in whom all things exist and for whom all things exist. You are the one who works all things together for good, for those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. And so we as your people this morning, we confess that our fear oftentimes is unfounded and is a result of us not knowing our heavenly Father. And so I pray that you would teach us to trust you, teach us to know you. I pray you would strengthen that trust. Lord, I pray that you would sustain our faith during these days as we're not able to gather together in a way that you've ordained for us to. And so we confess our faith is weakened or tempted to be weakened. Lord, how easy it is to grow cold over these past weeks and months. And so I confess my failure to love you as I ought over this past week and past month. And Lord, my failure to love others as I ought. And Lord, so we we ask that you'd be gracious. I ask you be gracious to me, be gracious to us who have not loved you and others as we ought. Lord, would you remind us continually that you are for us, that you are concerned most of all for our growth in Christ-likeness, that you're committed to making us more like Christ. And because of that, we know that anything that comes our way, any circumstance that we walk through is for that purpose. And so I pray that we, like Job, would learn to bless you in all circumstances. May your praise always be on our lips. Lord, may we, as the psalmist says, walk before you in the light of life. And so I pray that that would that would be your aid to us and you'd help us to walk as you've called us. Lord, I continue to pray for our church family. Lord, I praise you with, with Bobby and Kay Linker for the good report that Bobby got from the doctor regarding his cancer several weeks ago. Thank you for your kindness to the Linkers and, and to all of us who love him. Um, thank you that the cancer, there's no trace of it. So I, I pray you would um, help him now to recover his strength. I pray for Kay that you give her rest. Um, as, as she continues to care for Bobby. Thank you for the linkers. Would you bless them, be near to them. Lord, we rejoice with Ron and Sherry Desern that their grandson and daughter have been able to come home now. Thank you for your kindness to them and that family and uh, another healthy grandson to the Desern family. So we rejoice with them. I'm going to pray for Barbara Hawk's brother, John, and the, the health circumstances that he's facing uh, we pray you'd be near to him, help him to trust you, and Lord, help Barbara uh, to trust you as she is concerned for her brother. And Lord, we pray for Maria Palmer. Uh, thank you for Maria and what she's been to this church. Thank you for her joy, uh, her confidence in you, her, her eagerness to be with you. And so we pray these um, days as she's back home uh, with Donna, uh, would, you, would you comfort her, give her peace, um, and Lord, we, we pray you'd be near to Maria and Donna and others uh, now as she, as she seeks to recover her, her health from, from the issues that she's been going through. Uh, and then, Lord, we pray for CareNet uh, here on the peninsula, the, the ministry that you've given. Um, so we pray for that ministry. We pray for Ryan Holloway as he leads. Thank you so much for the ways that that ministry has been thriving through this crisis and the, the numerous opportunities that they are, are telling uh, of, of that they've had. And so we, we're just thankful that that ministry is still thriving. Would you continue to give Ryan and the team their wisdom 
Um, and Lord, we ask you continue, can you continue to use them for your purposes here on the peninsula. So, so thank you for that ministry. Um, and so, Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. You are gracious, um, and we give you thanks for that this morning. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to be in John chapter 16 this morning. John chapter 16. And so in just a, a minute or just a few seconds, I'm going to read verses 5 through 15 of John 16. Um, if you remember last week, uh, if you weren't with us or you didn't watch, last week we looked at verses 12 through 15 of John 16. And we looked at the role of the ministry, that the primary function of the Holy Spirit uh, from those verses. And we saw that it, the, the main purpose, the fundamental role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. And he did so, we saw, by continuing the work of Christ and taking what is Christ and making it known to the disciples so that they could make much of Christ by leading them in all truth. Um, and so, so we, we looked at that, and, and so if you took nothing away from last week other than the, the role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ, hopefully um, you saw that um, and you've remembered that. And so this week we're going we're gonna to kind of uh, reverse a little bit back up further into chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 11, um, and, and we're going to look at another purpose of the Spirit that's connected, so it's subordinate to glorifying Christ, but, but it's a way that Christ is glorified, this, this other ministry that we're going to see um, this morning. And so the, the ministry that we're going to look at this morning, specifically as it relates to the Spirit in the world, so last week is more of here's what the disciples are going to do for you, disciples. Now it's going to be here's, here's how the, the, the Spirit is going to minister in the world, um, and so we're going to see how the, how the Spirit functions in the world. Um, and specifically, we're going to see that the, the Holy Spirit's job or role is to convict the world or to prosecute the world. Um, and, and so it's a convicting work. And so last week, was the work of the Spirit is to glorify Christ. This week, we're going to see the work of the Spirit is to convict the world, to convict the world. And so we'll, we'll see that as we walk through um, these verses together. But, but let me read them for you. I'm actually going to start halfway through verse 4. Um, as, as Jesus here, this, this upper room discourse, um, you can follow along as I read. Hopefully you have your Bibles with you. John 16, I'm going to begin uh, middle of verse 4. And here's Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, quote, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears me speak, will, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. 
Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let let me pray for our time uh, before we dive into these verses. Uh, Father, I pray that that my words would be clear uh, over these next few minutes. May the benefit of your spirit in the world and in our own lives be made perfectly clear. Father, we thank you for sending your Son And Father and Son, we thank you for sending the Spirit. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So as we we work through uh, these verses, there's there's only two main points that we're going to see. And so point one, we'll see the advantage of the Spirit, and that's in verses four through seven, or or the benefit of the Spirit, you might say. But, But the advantage of the Spirit, point one, verses four through seven. And then second, we'll see the convicting work of the Spirit, the convicting work of the Spirit in verses 8 through 11. So the advantage of the Spirit, then the convicting work of the Spirit. That's what we'll be uh, working through. That's our outline for this morning. So let's begin there, verses 4 through 7, the advantage of the Spirit. Now, as we pick up here in John 16, um, I want us to, to, to kind of step back. I think it is going to be helpful to back up to the end of chapter 15, because at the end of chapter 15 kind of gives us a, a clear vision of the context here that, that we find Jesus um, saying these things. Looking at 15 will help us to see the clear advantage, how, how, uh, specifically how chapter 15 ends. Seeing how it ends and how 16 begins will give us a clear uh, picture as to why the coming of the Spirit is of, of advantage to the disciples. And so at the end of John chapter 15, kind of that, that last section of chapter 15, Jesus is preparing the disciples for the hatred of the world. So he's preparing them for what's to come. He's going to say, the world hate it, hates me. It's going to hate you. You're not better than the master. So, so how they treat me, they're not going to treat you any better. And so, so the world is going to persecute me. They're going to persecute you too because you belong to me. You're mine. And the world doesn't like me. So the world is not going to like you, disciples. He's, he's preparing them for what's to come. I faced it, disciples. You're going to face it. He's preparing them specifically for their suffering. And so then in verse 22 and 23, this is up in chapter 15, notice what Jesus says. The world is going to hate you. Remember, verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, that's the world, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. So so I've spoken to them. They've heard my words and that my words have have confirmed or convicted them. But it's not just my words. Jesus makes a similar point about his works there in verse 24. Not only if I had not spoken to them, but in verse 24, he said, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now... They have seen and hated both me and my father. And so Jesus' words and his works in the midst of of the world, they see what he does and they hear what he says and and they are convicted because they refuse to believe what he says and they they refuse to believe what he does. They They don't believe, they don't accept him, they reject him, they persecute him. And so Jesus is clearly preparing them for what's to come and, 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 saying, and how his works have, have rendered them guilty. But notice also there's a connection that he makes in verses 22 and 23 when he told them about, about why they're guilty, why they are, are guilty of sin. 
It was the speaking of Jesus and the works done by Jesus that accused those who hated him or convicted those who persecuted him. His, his words and his works proved them guilty. And their guilt was seen in that they didn't believe what Jesus said or did. And so Jesus says, I was sent by the Father. And so I came and all that I spoke and all that I did was, was the Father's will for me. I, I was sent by the Father to carry out what he had prepared for me. So that when, when this watching world persecutes me, hates me, they're not just hating me, they're also hating the Father who sent me. Right? So, so he's preparing them. that You're going to be hated too when, the, when, when you speak and you do these activities. They're, the world's going to hate you. But notice what Jesus means about his life. He, he's saying, my entire life was revelatory. Jesus, in what he said and did, was revealing to the watching world what God was like. And we, we, we shouldn't miss that. I mean, as, as we read the accounts of Jesus and his life, as he's walking and teaching and, and, and working miracles, I mean, was Jesus kind to the outcast, to, to those who were, who were hated by society? Was Jesus gentle with the children? Was Jesus patient with the weak? Was, was Jesus steadfast or persistent in his love for sinners? Was Jesus serious in the way that he confronted sin, the way that he spoke against evil? I mean, in all these ways, and, and many more, you, you can multiply this list, but in all these ways, we don't just see what Jesus is like. We see what the Father is like. And so on display in the life of the God-man Jesus Christ is God what he's like. And so it's a revelatory work. So much so that anyone who refused to listen to Jesus or to believe in Jesus or anyone who hated Jesus or persecuted Jesus didn't just persecute a man, they persecuted God himself or they, they refused to listen to God himself. And so, so that, was, that was how Jesus' life functioned there in Israel, in Jerusalem and, and around Jerusalem. And so after, after all that, Seeing how Jesus' life functioned, we're not able to see the advantage of the coming of the Spirit. Understanding that, that Jesus' words and actions accomplished something. It accomplished something specifically in terms of convicting the world. So, so Jesus' actions, his words and his, his deeds function that way in the world. And so now we're able to see how the Spirit was going to be advantageous when Jesus was gone and his, his words and his actions weren't, weren't going to function that way anymore. So, so listen here in chapter 15 how he continues. This is verse 26 there of John 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he, that is the Spirit, will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Into chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And so Jesus here, at the beginning of, end of chapter 15, beginning of chapter 16, he promises the helper is coming, the spirit of truth, who, who is also from the Father. He is going to bear witness about me. So in cha into chapter 16, it's like Jesus is saying, hey guys, just hold on. 
Just hang on. I'm telling you all this so so that you're going to get through this this fierce trial, this time of testing that's going to come. Just hang on. I'm telling you what's going to happen so when it does happen, you'll remember all that I'm telling you. Hang on. Things are going to get intense. Like You're all going to lose your heads. I mean, some of you literally, some of you are going to be, be killed just like me. And he's saying, just remember, when, when the world hates you, it's because they hated me and they hated the Father. You're not on the wrong side when that happens. Just hang on. You are mine. And evidence of this persecution says, this persecution evidence is that you are mine. It's not going to be pretty in the human eye, disciples, what's coming. It's not going to be pretty to the human eye, but in my Father's eye, it will be magnificent. And so that's how, this is what sets the stage for our passage this morning. And so look here down at verse 4 of chapter 16. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I was with you. So, so I didn't say, I didn't tell you this from the beginning because I was there. There's no need, Jesus says, for me to prepare you for the things before I was going to die because they weren't happening to you. So, so while I was here, you were not the object of hatred and persecution. It was me. So I was here. I didn't need to prepare you for it. But now that I'm going to be gone, I need to prepare you for it. So, so Jesus is telling them, I was the one who was always in danger. That they were the ones, they, they, were, they, were, they were lobbying to kill me. They were scheming to, to crucify me, to eliminate me. Not you. It was me. But, but when I'm gone, I'm gonna, I'm, you're going to need to know these things. But, but I didn't say them to you because I was with you. And not only was I the object of their scorn, notice also I was, I was, I was with you. And so if, what have you to fear when I'm with you? I mean, I was the one who could protect you. Why, why would you fear when I'm there? I was with you every step of the way. You you knew that you could always run to me. I would protect you. I I had words that that could shut the mouth of any Pharisee. I had power that that could conquer any wrong or evil or disease. I was your safe place. I mean, let's be honest. What is there to fear when the Son of God is by your side? But, verse 5, now I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to him who sent me. So I'm telling you this now because I'm not going to be here anymore. Notice verse 5, he says, and I, I'm going, and yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, you're so sad at, at, at the loss you think you're going to experience, you don't even care where I'm going. You need to care where I'm going because where I'm going is, is for your good. Now that Jesus has been preparing them for what's to come, these disciples are overwhelmed and they're only concerned with their sorrow with their loss. How are we going to manage when, when Jesus is gone? No one even thought to ask Jesus, well, where are you going? Is there anything else? Is this the end? They couldn't imagine a world without Jesus in it. They couldn't imagine facing all that was ahead of them without him. Their hearts were filled with sorrow. If only they knew, if only they said, well, well Jesus, where are you going? Verse 7, they don't ask, but he tells them just the same. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For, here's why, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it doesn't really matter where he's going. What matters is that he goes. They need to, they need to be concerned with, well, well what's going to happen when you go? And he's saying right here, 
It's better that I go because the helper's going to come to you. And he can't come unless I go. And so they don't, they don't fully realize it yet, but, but Jesus' words, there's no clarity lacking here. It is for their advantage that he leave them. Imagine hearing those words. Can, 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 they really believe, can Jesus really mean that? Can, can we really take him at his word? I mean, I thought about this. It's not like when you, when you, when you fire someone or you, you break up with someone and you say things that just try and make them feel better. So, so maybe you've been broken up with before and, and, and he or she says, well, just trust me. It's for the best that we don't see each other anymore. It's for, it's for the best. It's for your own good, right? How, how many middle schoolers or teenagers that have been heartbroken really believe that? Right? That's not what's happening here. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your good that I go away. The, the King James Version says, it's expedient for you that I go away. The advantage is yours when I leave. It's not because I'm going to be gone, but it's because of the one coming in my place. It's the, it's be, your advantage is, be, is related to the helper coming to you. If I don't go away, Jesus says, he's not coming. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the advantage has everything to do with their gain. Jesus is telling them the significance of their loss, which, which let's be honest, it is significant. Jesus is leaving them. But the significance of their loss will be overmatched by the benefit of their gain, which will also be significant. They are going to receive the Spirit, the Helper. And so disciples on the verge of, of what was ahead, seeing the, the road that lie before them, they needed to hear the words from their master here in verse 7. They needed to hear, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. When you're standing before the council, and you're fearing for your life, remember, it's better that I'm not there with you. And so it to the, they needed to hear these words of promise and comfort from Jesus for the road that was ahead. And so it's to their advantage that the, the Spirit, the sitting of the Spirit is for the advantage of the disciples. And before we look at verses 8 through 11 to what exactly the Spirit would do, uh, I, I want to just make sure that, that you and I hear the words of Jesus here in verse 7. Because it's not just true for the disciples, it's true for us. It is better for us that Jesus is not here in bodily form with us today. It's better because he has sent his helper. The same helper that was promised to the disciples is the same helper who was given to us today. And it is for our benefit, our advantage. We just need to recognize that. I mean, if you're, if you're like me, at some point in your Christian life, you have thought, I just wish I could like, physically talk to Jesus and, and walk with him and, and physically be with him. I, mean, I, I think you've probably thought that before. Oh, that'd be so awesome. I could ask him whatever question I wanted. I, 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 could, have, I could see this or I could, I could, we, we could have this conversation. Well, most of the time it's just wishful thinking. We need to, we need to understand that to that thinking, that, that wishful thinking, this passage, this verse, Jesus himself says, you don't want to wish that. The benefit of me being with you is not greater than the benefit of the helper having been given to you. If I was with you physically, Christian, today in 2020, it would be to your detriment. I mean, okay, does, does that sound strange to you? That's what Jesus is saying. It's better that I go because I'm sending someone. 
We need to hear that, not only to correct our wrong assumption about, oh, I just wish Jesus were here, but also to aid our appreciation for what we have, or more specifically, who we have. We have the Spirit, and it is better for us. I want to just list here a few reasons why I think Jesus could honestly say that it was better for the Spirit to come than for him to be here. So here's just a few reasons that I thought to list. First, the sending of the Spirit is better because the Spirit would not be limited in the ways that Jesus was. This is probably the most obvious. Hopefully you've heard this before or or thought about this before. Jesus was a a real man, and he was limited by by his physicalness. He didn't lose his attributes, but, but he was limited by time and space and fatigue. He got tired he couldn't go 24-7 just doing ministry and working miracles and teaching. He, he got tired. He had to sit down at a well. He had to, he had to rest. He fell asleep in a ship. Right? He could not be in more than one place at one time. The Spirit, when He would come, would not be limited in this way. And so the, the ministry of the Spirit would have a scope that far outweighed that of Jesus. I mean, related to this, all, back in John 14... In John 14, uh, verse 16, Jesus, earlier in this, the same, this same discourse, the same speech with, with the disciples, Jesus would, would say, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And listen to what he says, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so the coming of the Spirit is better because the Spirit's ministry would not come to an end by crucifixion. Jesus said, he's going to be with you forever. The Spirit's not going to die. The Spirit's not going to be buried and and raised. The Spirit will be with you forever, permanently. So so that's better because because I I was crucified and I was raised and and now I'm leaving. Not so with with the Helper. But also, did you notice what Jesus said at the very end? You know him, disciples, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so the nature of the Spirit's ministry would be different. The disciples, as they're walking with Jesus, their experience of the Spirit's ministry was, was that, it, that, that they experienced Jesus' possession of the Spirit. The Spirit was, the, the, the disciples' experience of the Spirit was primarily through Jesus. The Spirit was with them because Jesus had been given the Spirit for the purpose of, of his mission, for his ministry. So so they knew the Spirit because the Spirit was with them. But when Jesus left and sent the Spirit, Jesus said the Spirit would be in you. He's with you now, but you're going to know him because he's with you now. But but then he will be in you. The Spirit would indwell them, which is different. Their experience of the Spirit would be different. So the Spirit's ministry would not be limited in the same way that Jesus' ministry was. Second, the sin of the Spirit was better because of what the sending of the Spirit represented. And so as you step back and look at the big picture of the Bible, the the age of the Spirit or the sending of the Spirit is part and parcel of what would mark the the ministry of the Messiah and the the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The Messiah, when when he would come, he was going to be the one who, remember when John said, he's going to baptize you with fire. This is the, the, the Messiah who's going to do this. And the pouring out of the Spirit by Jesus going to the Father and sending the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit would indicate that the kingdom has come. The sending of the Spirit was a sign that, that the last days had arrived. That's what Peter says in, in Acts 2. And, and with that, with this, this, this age, the, the final salvation of God's people was here. 
And, and the judgment of God's enemies was, was here. That's what the Spirit, the coming of the Spirit would represent. And so, so Jesus going to his Father and sending the Spirit would make clear to all that the new age had dawned in the death and resurrection of Christ. So that's another reason is it's better for them because when the Spirit comes, they're going to be in a better age. They're going to be on the other side of the work of salvation. The coming of the Spirit would confirm the significance of that work. Third, the sending of the Spirit was better because the sending of the Spirit would mean that Jesus had, in fact, ascended to the Father. I mean, this is what Jesus says in our passage, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. And so the sending of the Spirit would, would mark or confirm that Jesus had received his position of authority, having accomplished his work. If he does not go away, he cannot send the Spirit. In fact, you should write down uh, John 7.39. So, so earlier on in, God, in John's Gospel, Jesus is at this Feast of Booths, and he stands up, there's a Jewish festival, he stands up and he's talking about, uh, living water, and he says in John 7, I think this is back in, in verse 37, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will, <coughs> will flow rivers of living water. And so Jesus stands up in the middle of the, 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 the festival and says that, Believe in me and, and receive eternal life, receive waters of life flowing. And while this is a, a true and bold statement, Verse 39 is, is the gospel writer John's commentary on what's just happened. Verse 739. Now, this, he, this is an aside. John is commenting on what Jesus just said. This Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Right? So he's, he's talking about the Spirit, this water welling up. He's talking about the Spirit for, for, for those, whom we're going to, those who are going to receive that Spirit. For as yet, John says, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so John 7, 39, Jesus, the, the reality of Jesus' ascension is that until he's glorified, the Spirit can't come. And John wants his readers to know that. And so the sending of the Spirit would, would be confirmation that Jesus had, in fact, been glorified. It would guarantee that Jesus was, in fact, seated at the right hand of God the Father, having inherited his place, the place of power and authority, the sending of the Spirit would mean that the work of Christ had been completed, that, that, that as he ascended and as his work was culminated, he had, he had received his reward completely. And so when the Spirit comes, it would mean that the work of redemption had been accomplished, which obviously is something that couldn't happen if Jesus was still with them. So it's better that the Spirit come to them and not Jesus. And so for these reasons, and, and probably more, we ought to be convinced, let's be convinced, as the first disciples eventually were, that the ministry of the Spirit and, and His presence with us, in us, is to our advantage, and that we are far better off without Jesus because we have the Helper. Well, let's move to our second point and look at what exactly Jesus said the Spirit would do when He did come. So, so the, the, what, what was the work of this Spirit? So we see in verses 8 through 11, the convicting work of the Spirit. And so as we look at the specific work of the Spirit in the absence of Jesus, let, let's just remember the context, specifically what Jesus has just said about the guilt and sin of those who hated him and those who didn't believe him. So remember in John 15, what we just looked at, when, when Jesus said that his words and actions convicted or, or, or persecuted those in the world who were opposed to him. Right? So, so how they treated him served as a, a conviction on them. 
Well, since he's leaving, right, it's logical to think, well, well, no one is going to be here to, to witness or testify against this world who's opposing God and his servants. With Jesus gone, the disciples would, would be tempted, certainly, to believe that they had no help in continuing the ministry of Jesus. We can't do this. We, we can't continue this. I know there's, there's 11 of us, going to be 12, but, but we can't carry out the work, continue the work of, of, of the Messiah, of the Christ. And it's to that, to, that, to that thought that Jesus says, that's exactly what the Spirit is going to do. The Spirit is going to continue my ministry in that specific way, in this convicting way. Not only would the Spirit glorify Christ, as we saw last week, but the Spirit would also convict the world in the same way that Christ did. The, the, the Spirit would prosecute. This is a legal scene, legal language. The Spirit would prosecute the world. So, so look there at verses 8 through 11. Let me read our passage one more time. Or, or the work of the Spirit here in verse 8 through 11. And when he comes, Jesus says, he will convict the world. He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then verse 9 to 11 explains each of those three points. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so Jesus says the Spirit's going to convict the world concerning three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so, so, so let's ask, what does Jesus mean here? Let, let's look at those three charges. But, but let me make sure we're on the same page here. Because as we consider these three charges, one thing becomes clear. And that is in this, this courtroom language, this courtroom setting, what, what's going to become clear and what will help us understand these three charges is that there are two sides. There are two sides in this courtroom. There's the side of Jesus and his disciples who, who have believed in him, who are with him. But then there's the side of the world those who are opposed to Jesus, those who are going to persecute and hate the disciples. Right? And so, so understanding these two sides is important, but even more important than that is understanding that how you get on the side that you're on is how you relate to Jesus. So your relationship with Jesus is what determines what side you're on. In other words, now we're going to say this more about this in a minute, but the reality is, and we need to hear this, that we all once were or now are on the side of the world as those opposed to Jesus. No one is naturally born on this side. Okay, and so we are on the side of the world as those who oppose Jesus. And so the convicting work of the Spirit, when the Spirit works in the life of the one who's opposed to Jesus, the Spirit causes those opposed to Jesus to look at Jesus differently, or we might say correctly, rightly. And so the Spirit convicts the world and says, you are wrong for opposing Jesus. And I'm going to show you Jesus, his work, and his ministry to, to evidence the fact that you're on the wrong side. So that when, when, when someone on this side no longer refuses Jesus, it's because we, we trust Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus. We recognize the reality behind the events of Jesus, which, which did not meet the eye in Jerusalem in the first century. Which is why all of this evidence, these three charges, the prosecution of the world in all three cases, the, 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 the convicting work involves the work of Jesus, specifically his death and resurrection. And so as we look at these three charges, what, what's going to be important to remember is that the convicting work of the Spirit is directly connected to Christ and his finished work. And the convicting work of the Spirit 
is aimed at reversing the world's judgment regarding Jesus. The convicting work of the Spirit is directly connected to Christ and his finished work and is aimed at reversing the world's judgment regarding Jesus, which means that in this upper room discourse, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for, for what's to come, he's actually saying, when the Spirit comes, you're not actually going to be on the defensive. They're gonna, they're gonna, you're going to be on trial, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated, yes, but you're going to have the prosecutor on your side. And he's actually going to be putting the world on the defensive. So, so look there at verse 9, the first charge. When he comes, Jesus says, the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So the Spirit will convict the world regarding sin, reason, because they do not believe in me, Jesus says. Now the way of saying it is that a failure to believe in Christ will be the reason for the world's conviction of sin. He will prosecute the world or he will convict the world. He will prove the world to be guilty for its failure to believe in Jesus. Now, now think about this. I think this, this, gives, this gives clarity to this whole, this whole section here. As Jesus is hanging on the cross on Good Friday, what is the verdict that the world declares regarding that man hanging on the tree? What did they think as they passed by? What did the Roman government, what did the Jewish rulers declare regarding Jesus as they crucified him? Right? The world says, guilty. This man is guilty, and they did so because they did not believe what he said. They did not believe that he was who he said he was. The ones that believed Jesus, the ones that were on his side, the disciples, they're the ones uh, scared and weeping and mourning that Jesus was being killed. The world declared he is guilty. And Jesus says when the Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world regarding sin. The, the Spirit is going to turn the tables, so to speak. And he's going to do so because when he comes, when the Spirit comes, remember, where's Jesus going to be when he sends the Spirit? When the Spirit comes, Jesus is going to be at the right hand of the Father and will have been vindicated. If Jesus doesn't rise and ascend, the Spirit can't convict regarding sin in the same way. But when Jesus sends his Spirit, he will convict men regarding their misjudgment when it comes to Jesus, his person and his work. He will convict them. He will testify to them that the world got it wrong in the crucifixion of the Messiah. And don't you know, Acts chapter 2, after receiving this promised helper, after the Spirit comes at Pentecost, Peter, among the other disciples, he stands up, and what does he do? He proclaims the events of the death and resurrection of Christ. And, and as he comes to, to the end of, of the, the record of his sermon, Acts 2, this is verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Right? That's a simple declaration of what really happened there in Jerusalem. He, he's, he's revealing the reality behind the, 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 what met the eye in the crucifixion. And he's explaining. It, it wasn't just that, that, that a man, a criminal, was crucified. The Messiah died and has been made Lord. And here's the point. Next verse, Acts 2.37. Notice their response. So, so Peter preaches this Pentecost sermon. Verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, we now think differently about what happened. 
How can we fix this? What are we supposed to do? We recognize we are guilty. We played part in that. We're on the opposition and we don't want to be on anymore because that's the wrong side. What are we going to do? Verse 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And so at this first sermon, we see playing out exactly what Jesus said would play out when the Spirit came. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And that conviction is exactly what Jesus is talking about here in John 16. And we should should note that Peter doesn't do the convicting. He simply proclaims Christ crucified, buried, and raised. And the Spirit glorified Christ in the hearts of the listening world. The Spirit said, this is who you crucified. He was no mere man. He was God in the flesh. And as the Spirit glorifies Christ and, and works conviction, they, they respond and, and they switch teams. They believe in Jesus. They see differently. The Spirit convicts the world regarding sin because they do not believe in Jesus. And that conviction, as we see in Acts 2 and in the rest of Acts, even as we see in our own lives, if you're a Christian, that conviction is what drives us to Jesus, what drives us to put our faith In him, the conviction of sin and unbelief drives us to Christ. And so even this convicting work of the Spirit is aimed at glorifying Christ so that that those who oppose Jesus have new eyes and a new heart and they love Jesus and they they worship him. So the Spirit's going to convict the world regarding sin because they do not believe in Jesus. Second charge, when he comes, Jesus says, the Spirit will convict the world Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Again, the convicting work of the Spirit is directly connected to the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. We know know that's the case because of the explanation that Jesus gives. The world's going to be convicted regarding righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. And so I think that the point Jesus is making here, similar to the last point, is that his ascension, his going to the Father, him being there no more, them no longer being able to see him, is, is validation or vindication regarding his death. Again, consider the verdict of the world regarding Jesus. On the cross hung not a righteous man, but an unrighteous man. The world declares guilty, unrighteous, wrong. And the verdict declared by the world continued as he hung on the cross. It continued as he was put into his grave. And, and even into the third day, that verdict continued to hang there. But then... But then that verdict was reversed. It was flipped on its head. Jesus rose from the dead and was declared to be righteous, declared to be right, correct. He hadn't been mistaken regarding his identity. He hadn't been misleading regarding what he had come to do. Jesus Jesus was not a fool. He wasn't a liar. His resurrection vindicates he was right, correct, righteous. And as Jesus goes back to the Father, it is clear that the world was not on the side of correct or right or righteous. But in crucifying Jesus, the world had, had made themselves in op- opposers of Jesus on the wrong side. And so if Jesus doesn't rise and doesn't ascend to the Father, the world is still correct. Jesus was, was a fool. And he, he wasn't who he said he was. And he didn't come to do what he said he did. But the fact that he rose vindicates Jesus. He is righteous and And the world, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is going to show the world, you were on the side of unrighteousness. Jesus was right. And then finally, verse 11, the final charge that Jesus mentions here, when the Spirit comes, 
he will convict the world, verse 11, concerning judgment. Going to convict concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, Jesus said. I mean, again, think back. Think back to that, that crucifixion. The occasion of the crucifixion. Oh, how happy Satan must have been for those three days. Think of how happy evil was. The son had been defeated. Jesus had been judged. Sin and its greatest weapon had conquered the Messiah. Judgment had been rendered and Jesus had been killed. That was the verdict, at least to the the looking eye, the, the, the outward appearance. That was the verdict. Jesus judged, defeated, conquered. But... But, can I get an amen? But that verdict three days later was proved to be majestically misguided because the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of the Father to the seat of all authority and all dominion and all power, and all power that ascension powerfully proclaimed, this man is Lord. And as such, the judgment regarding Jesus had been reversed. It's not Jesus who was judged and defeated, but rather his enemies have been judged and defeated by his resurrection and ascension. It's not Jesus who's wrong, guilty, judged. It's his enemy. It's the enemy of all God's people, the ruler of this world, who is shown to be defeated and judged and downcast. This is the convicting work of the Spirit. It's regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Spirit would come and His conviction would be a reversal of what appeared to be happening in the death of Christ. He would convict the world and He would lead men and women to faith in Jesus. He would lead enemies, those who stood with the world opposed to Jesus, to align themselves with the Christ, to worship The Messiah, that is the work of the Spirit. And Jesus promises to his disciples, the Spirit's going to come and he's going to be the prosecutor. He's going to be on your side. You simply raise up my death, my resurrection, and the Spirit is going to do the rest. He is the one. And so in terms of application, I, I just have two points of application here. First, we ought to recognize this is for me and for you. If If you believe in Jesus, if your faith is in him, if you have a heart that loves Jesus, that is a direct result of the sending of the Spirit. If you are a Christian, it's because the Spirit did in your heart the exact same things that Jesus said that he would do. The same things that he promised he would do. So if you're a Christian, it's because the Spirit has been sent. And we, we, we ought not to forget that we were all born on the wrong team. We were all born into the wrong kingdom. We were born in the wrong person, in Adam. We are born all into the dominion of darkness. We are all under the, the power of the prince of the air. That was you. That was me. Maybe that's still you today. We're not naturally born on the right team. We're born as opposers, as enemies. And if you're not there anymore, it's not because you just heard the gospel and decided to believe. That doesn't happen. Someone who's a slave to sin and and born into sin doesn't just say, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I think I'll put my faith in Jesus. That's not how it happens. 
If you believed, it's because the Spirit glorified Christ in your mind in such a way that you were convicted about who Jesus was and what he came to do. You were convicted as one who was guilty, who played a part in opposing the Messiah and refusing to believe him. And, and as he worked, you saw Christ and you heard about his death on the cross for you. And you're convicted and, and you saw Jesus as the son sent to save you, to redeem you, to forgive you of your sins, to offer you eternal life. And when you saw Jesus as that, you put your faith in him. You believed. But it's the spirit who glorifies Christ, who convicts you and shows you Jesus. And so this morning, if you're watching and you're not a Christian, if you don't love Jesus, maybe you go to church, maybe you talk about all the, the right stuff. But if your heart is not set on loving Jesus, you need to trust him. Put your faith in him. Right? He, he wasn't just a byproduct of an unfortunate series of unfortunate events in Jerusalem. He was sent to die in order to be raised three days later to save you from your sins. That's who he was. That's why he came. To show you what God is like. To show you that, that God loves you and desires for you to be reconciled to him. To be in relationship with him. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and raised three days later. And if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in him, believe in him, you will be saved. Christ is able to save you. If that's not you anymore, if you are a Christian, praise God that he sent his spirit. Praise God that the Holy Spirit worked in your life. I mean, praise him right now. No one's going to hear you. Just praise him. Thank you, God. Today, maybe later today, later this week, praise God that he sent his spirit. Because without the work of the spirit, you are not a Christian. I am not a Christian. So as often as we thank Jesus for dying for us, which we ought to, we ought to thank the spirit for his work in our life. Because without the, the work of each member of the Trinity, we don't have salvation. It is to our advantage that the Spirit came down from on high. Second point of application, last point as I'm, I'm, in, I'm closing. Consider the, the reality of this, the, the, the reality of the work of the Spirit. Consider the burden that the presence of the Spirit lifts from our evangelism. I mean, the, the fact that this is the work of the Spirit, the Spirit is the one who convicts the world, that lifts a burden off of our shoulders when it comes to evangelism. I mean, just like in Acts 2, in Acts 3, in Acts 10, in Acts 16, and so on and so on, the Spirit convicts. The Spirit convicts. And He convicts specifically regarding the death and resurrection of Christ. And this lifts a huge burden from those of us who follow Christ because producing conviction in others... So, so, Producing conviction in others is not part of our job description. We don't do that. We can't do that. You don't have to. You and I, we preach Christ. I mean, I thought about even in our relationships with other Christians, we can't produce conviction. That's the work of the Spirit. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But especially in proclaiming the gospel as the disciples do in the book of Acts, it is simply the proclaiming of his death and resurrection that people hear the good news and they either, in light of their conviction, in light of the work of the Spirit, they believe in Christ and live, or they don't respond in faith and they continue in their unbelief, continuing to believe. Jesus was just some random guy. Do you really believe that? 
That, that, that's, that's so crazy. Christianity is so outdated. Do you, you really believe that? And they continue in unbelief and remain dead in sins and trespasses. And that's not your burden to bear. The Spirit is convicting them. If they don't respond with faith, that's not on you. That is on the Spirit. And so, so what we do in terms of evangelism is we proclaim Christ. We proclaim the work of Christ. We, we love others. We love our neighbor, but we proclaim the message of the gospel. Crucified, buried, and raised. That's what we do. And then the Spirit convicts, and the Spirit produces faith. And all we do is, is, is we speak. I mean, how hard is that? Why don't we speak more boldly? Why don't I speak more boldly? We have great reason to proclaim the, the events of the life death, and resurrection of Christ. We have been given the Spirit. The world is under the convicting work of the Spirit, and He can do the job way more efficiently than us. And so it is to our benefit, to our advantage, that the Spirit has come. Well, let, me, let me pray for us as we, as we close this morning.